coming to you in this week's episode. And for a good portion of the last 200 years, those that wanted to maintain white supremacy and white superiority were, for the most part, successful in adapting and adopting portions of the slave code and putting them into criminal enforcement. And, and then it was preferentially applied to minorities. They were successful in redlining certain portions of the city that were least desirable and then passing codes and local laws that made it difficult for minorities to purchase homes in the desirable areas of it. So redlining became one of those tools. The separate but equal education systems that were developed and then preferentially funded for the majority were also tools of the battlefield. So what we've gone from guns and cannons to rules, regulations, and laws to fight battles. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Well, Dr. Nelson, here we are again for our Courageous Conversation. Um, it's always a pleasure to sit here and chew the fat, mull things over, bounce things around. Thank you to Nationwide for your support in our discussions, and thank you to all our listeners and the listeners to whom they have referred to us on Spotify and Apple and other podcast platforms. The world is our oyster. Where do we want to go with it today? No, well, good morning, Peter, and, and uh, hope you had a good week. Uh, the pictures that you sent back from Africa were phenomenal. Uh, I can't wait to hear more about that trip. Hope you've gotten over your time zone differences, and you're at least uh, somewhat lucid for this podcast. And I want to also acknowledge our producer, Nicole Nelson, and the work that she does, and a lot has happened in this past week. So, and I don't know which direction you might want to go, go in. Do you want to talk about the veterinary profession itself, or do you want to talk about social issues that may have developed? You know, we've had at least two national, nationally recognized police shootings that have occurred, resulted in the death of, of at least one black woman. And of course, there's always the the uh, multiple indictments of multiple people with you know that 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 has polarized the nation on the one, on the one hand i think half the country thinks it's about time some people are being held accountable for the big lie and the little lies that were promoted to support the big lie and then the other half of the country believes that this is all a uh, a witch hunt and uh, and politically uh, motivated. 
and we 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 did a podcast recently to say that this is a moment for civic awareness and civic education and it seems to me that this is the most most opportune moment to take advantage of viewing the judicial system which seems to be the last branch of our three-headed democracy that ha that has some semblance of working normally and seems to be one of our last uh, resorts to rebalancing the boat. Although I think the last result resort is still in the involvement and engagement of, the, of its citizenry on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But one man, one vote is a myth if we allow gerrymandering to flagrantly uh, and, and insidiously take away votes. Uh, the other thing that's happened this week is Alabama telling the Supreme Court, screw you. We know we gerrymandered the districts of Alabama so that there will only be one predominantly Black district in a state that has 25% African-Americans. We're going to do it again, even though you told us to change it. And they forced the Supreme Court to, to essentially create another commission, an independent commission, to redraw the boundaries. So I guess the question I have is, have we started the Civil War? Have we started the Civil War? Um, I think we have been uh, subconsciously or quietly fighting a civil war for 10 or 12 years. It's becoming louder. I think we've been quietly fighting the civil war and it's becoming louder. I watched White House Plumbers which was about Jay Gordon Liddy, et cetera, brought me back to the uh, Watergate, which in many ways seems pretty innocuous compared to some of the current issues. And then uh, there's a, a show on Apple TV about 1971 and how music influenced the world in 1971. It talked about a lot of the different things that went on in 1971 and, and the ongoing racism and the treatment of artists and in, in 1971 as well. So I, I keep going back and saying we haven't come very far in, in many things, but um, I do say, I do think we are, we're, we're living through another civil war. We are not calling it that, but it feels that way. It feels that there is such a divide that we're going through. And I, it's so hard to envision how we can narrow that divide. And the fact that one of the surveys that came out this week indicated that even in the face of indictments, the polls reflect a higher interest in the um, individual who was president from 2016 to 2020, and that he's become more popular 
even in the face of everything else, to me, starts to move that chasm that was there even further apart. I mean, that's that's just really, really concerning when you hear stuff like that. So you introduced a lot of things that I had responded to viscerally. You started with, you think that we've been fighting a civil war for the last 10 to 12 years, which, um, and when I use my own life experiences, I realized that your concern about the, the polarity of the country, honestly, <laughs> 10, 10 or 12 years is a drop in the bucket compared to my 60s, my, my nearly 70 years on this earth and the things that I lived through that once again, you reminded me that you didn't have to be aware of the things that occurred in the segregated South uh, and, and that you were protected from this polarity that's, that seems to be national now. I would dare say that that polarity was national even then, but it was much more extreme as it is now and I may have said that wrong. It is much more extreme. It has always been more extreme in the South than nationally. It was much more extreme in the South than it is in the South now in the 50s and 60s. More extreme than that in the 20s. More extreme than that during the, the, post, the immediate post-Civil War era. But if you listen to heritage protectors in the South, you will hear a phrase that says, we may have lost the war, but we're going to win the peace. And that phrase suggests that the Civil War was never, isn't, was never over. It's kind of, it, there's a cold, there's always been a cold war within the nation and that cold war has always had a deep heated core which allowed for us for some to think that when barack obama became president we were in the post-racial period they now know that that was faulty analysis of the election of the first black president but be that as it may i believe that it is that that core of heat that was never quenched or never controlled, it just went into secret clusters and coals and the embers were kept, were, were kept going by people who refused to relinquish their views of superiority. There are uh, plenty of episodes in America's history where our our views of a coalescing democracy was just simply wrong. Uh, we have always had this type of incivility throughout our history. But we tended to elect officials who learned how to disagree civilly in order to pass legislations and not 
and not uh, give in to the incivil uh, gut reactions of tit for tat. That broke apart. And it wasn't just the far right. When Mitch McConnell decided to change customs in the Senate and introduces, introduced reasons that had never been used before, like let's wait until after the election before we decide on the Supreme Court justices. Let's hold all nominations for Supreme Court justices until this Black president is no longer president for a social reason. Those are the, those are the things that, that added fuel to the fire. And now everybody feels as if there are no rules anymore. And, and you're putts if you try to follow them or if you instill them. And that gives everybody free range to be unfair. You know, I remember a time when I, I was watching the first half of the Boulder, Nebraska, the Colorado Buffalo and Nebraska football game this morning. And I remember the time when, when a black coach of a major football team or a, or a black coach of a historically black football team might pay, might play a historically white football team. When we had to worry about the referees in football or basketball, erroneously applying penalties to the black team to, if, if the team seemed to be on par or winning the game. And I was watching this game, realizing that at least in sports, that doesn't seem to be a problem anymore. The, the game was being called equitably, as equitably as referees can call a game when you have rabid fans on both sides, you know. But it wasn't about race. But if Deion Sanders had become a, a thing as a coach back in the 60s, he would have to fight that as well you know unfortunately that has moved into politics and so we have states like texas and alabama and florida and north carolina gerrymandering willfully because they're no longer being monitored by the federal government and they're gerrymandering in order to retain power for a minority party. That's just like saying you can't use half your team to play or shortening the football field when you have the ball and listening it when I have the ball. If I'm hearing you correctly, and this is for me to understand, you're suggesting that there's a feeling that although on paper, and I can't even say history books because God knows that keeps getting rewritten, that on paper, a civil war was ended in the 1860s with a peace settlement at Appomattox, that war really has never ended. And that there's been embers that have been kept alive for the last 160 years or so waiting for different fuel to bring them forth and and that there are people who still tending to those embers waiting for the opportunity to 
create a new environment where a, a civil war could flare up again. Am, am I hearing that? Is that what I interpreted? You're almost on point. Uh, you're right if you're if if you're talking about the emotional state, right, of, of war. Right. What changed at Appomattox was the battlefield. Right. The war never stopped. The battlefield moved from geography to politics and to, to politics and policies. And for a good portion of the last 200 years, those that wanted to maintain white supremacy and white superiority were for the most part successful in adapting and adopting portions of the slave code and putting them into criminal enforcement and and then it was preferentially applied to minorities they were successful in redlining certain portions of the city that were least desirable and then passing codes and local laws that made it difficult for minorities to purchase homes in the desirable areas of it. So redlining became one of those two. The separate but equal education systems that were developed and then preferentially funded for the majority were also tools of the battlefield. So what we've gone from guns and cannons to rules, regulations, and laws to fight battles. Yes. And then as we gradually began to, un to unveil the obvious unfairness of these practices, and as we began to reverse the and level the playing field the people who have been growing those embers who have been always been willing to fight if need be are now seeing a greater and greater reason to go back to the battlefield if necessary so the fight of wokeness the fight of reverse discrimination the fight against affirmative action the fight against uh, race preference in order to achieve to in order to address past discriminatory practices, the fight against reparations, all of those things, if they don't work, the end result is always the bullet. So when we first started having these conversations, I commented that from my position, it felt like we were one step forward, two steps back when it came to the issues of racism and prejudice, et cetera. Now, you um, explained to me that I, I could feel that way from my position of, of white privilege, but that from your standpoint, that there had been positive changes, especially because the ability to vote and other things had all occurred in the last 60 years or so. But what I'm also hearing from you is that you're also recognizing that there are efforts to go backwards. 
and and they're being done through paper and pen and and redlining and everything else to somehow prevent the the changes that the Civil Rights Act and other acts did having the full impact that they should. I may be off by suggesting we're going backwards, but I'm not totally off by suggesting that there are efforts to prevent us from going forward. So it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> yes. I, I, I had this conversation with my partner that during, during the fishing trip. Now I'm gonna rephrase what I think I heard you say uh, as tactfully as you could. Yes, we did have a, a conversation in a previous podcast where you were frustrated at the fact that we are still here. And I'm not sure if it was in the George Floyd pod, podcast or if it was in another one, but you were very emotional and and you felt that it wasn't working. You didn't understand. And the passion with which you expressed it was more than one step forward, two steps back. It was more, we're still we're still here. But in that statement, you seem to say we have, you, no, you actually said we haven't moved at all. We haven't changed at all. And so I, my response had to balance that, had to counter that and say, no, there have been changes, but that doesn't mean that I'm so naive that I don't know that there are people who are still here. There's a difference between the status the African-American population by the, the status changes, the economic status changes, the political status changes, the social status changes that have occurred, and the social desires of white supremacists, white supremacists that have not changed. And what I was trying to point out was, was that there have been changes. I wanted, I did not want such a bleak picture to, that you had described to stand without acknowledging that we have had our victories, that we have had our, we have made, there has been social evolution in America. I didn't mean to paint a Disney-esque picture though about those changes or to suggest that there wasn't continued efforts to return us to the past or to reassert the acts that we fought so hard to, to get off of our shoulders, you know, and I even and I do believe in that in that discussion, I said I said so. But it is difficult when you're so disappointed in the actions of people that reflect a blatant superiority to the point that you believe it's that you have the authority and the power to just shoot a person. One of the best dichotomies I can think of. So, so first of all, America is a gun culture. We have a strong gun culture. And everybody's heard why we think we we should have guns and why and why we need guns, et cetera. I, I don't want to get into that. Let's just accept that we have a strong gun culture. But that gun culture 
has different effects and different consequences for different demographics of our nation. And I was noticing one day, I watch FBI International and FBI something else. They have three series of FBI's. And I am amazed at how quickly they will pull a gun out in order to control a situation. And I'm calling out those three shows because I'm appalled to see an agent pull a gun when there's no gun on the other side. And the threat of the gun is used to force the individual to subject to the order. That in and of itself, if a child is watching that, tends to lower their, inhibit their inhibitions about having a gun, owning a gun, having a gun in their hand, even shooting the gun. I am just as appalled when I find, when I see how easily they shoot a gun. Now, I'm not talking about in self-defense either. but and, and I realize that being a policeman, sometimes it's, it's, it's you or them, you know. And so I'm, okay, I, I, I'm fine with that. My problem is the times that I that they pulled the gun in the first place that I don't think needs to be pulled. And then when you complicate that training, that tendency to use the gun to exert your authority, even in relatively peaceful settings, and when I say that, I mean the person may be arguing, the person may be resisting verbally because, you know, for whatever reason, that is not enough to pull a gun. This black woman that was killed, and I forgot what city we were, we, they were in, in her car, they had every reason to stop her because the store felt that she had shoplifted some of their merchandise. The police happened to have to be apprehending somebody else on the street. They went to the policeman, said this woman that's about to get into that car right there, took some of our merchandise. They went to see if she had their merchandise. She got in the car. She would not get out. They asked her to roll the window down. She would not get out. She did not give appropriate respect or due to the police. They pulled their gun out. Now, she didn't have a gun. She was shoplifting. If she had a gun, she didn't expose it. That was never the case. But she was behind a vehicle. And you've heard the thing that a vehicle is a life-threatening instrument, too. Now, imagine being, let's assume the worst. Let's assume that she shoplifted. Let's assume that the reason she didn't get out is because she knew that, that if they caught her, if they got if they, if they look through those bags, they're going to find whatever she took without receipts. She didn't want to get caught. Let's let, let's put let's put ourselves in her mind. She didn't want to get caught, and she was trying any way she could just to get away so she wouldn't get caught. One of the policemen stood in front of the car with the gun drawn, with the intent that that should tell you, "Don't test me. I could I can shoot you." I think that that policeman escalated that situation when he did that. I think that that was unnecessary. I think that the policeman put her 
into in uh, mortal danger when he didn't have to. And I think he did it because that's the way they are trained. Now, I don't know if he would do it, do the same thing with a white person. But I tend to believe that he would think I can reason with a white person. Black people only respond to force because they don't reason as well. Now that's my bias and we'll never know, but it's irrelevant because I still think if he had did a white person, it wasn't necessary. He is the one who created the dangerous situation, not her. And when she tried to, she turned the wheels as hard as she could to avoid them, but he was right up on the car and she tried to move. If he hadn't had his gun pulled, he would have gotten out of the way or he would have backed up and said, you cannot leave. And maybe after two or three fits and starts, he might've pulled his gun then, but an able-bodied policeman ought to be able to get out of a parked car, a parked car's way. And they ought to be able to follow her home and arrest her at home. Or they ought to be able to take her car tag number, which is on the front and the back of the car, and catch her at their leisure. They may not be able to prove the shoplifting, but they can arrest her for disobeying a police officer and threatening a police officer. But they so didn't have to take a life to enforce any of those laws. So I want to ask you a question that goes back and brings this section to a circle. The first question you asked me is about a civil war. Yeah. yeah. Is the vignette that you were just talking about, the experience that was just talking about, a overt covert or has nothing to do with the civil war is it is it part of of what our concerns should be is it an isolated incident is it a, a symptom of a bigger problem that we're going to have just wrap this section up with one thought as to where that fits into the initial discussion on civil war it is it has nothing to do with civil war it's a okay. consequence of race relations which led to the civil war Right. So it's got a tentacle that, that feeds into it. Yes, absolutely. And the way we train our police is a consequence of how we hunted down Black and, and escaped slaves. So we are still fighting a civil war. Of course. But I've, I've already said that we just changed the battlefield. Yeah. I don't want it to be that crass or that superficial. It's not about, it's about bias, which is harder to wrap your head around. You know, the civil war involves an extreme degree of privilege and supremacy by one race. If, if we want to define war, we're saying, we're willing to throw out all the rules of fairness in order to maintain power. But now when we start talking about our institutions of democracy, black people want the police force too, but how they are, but how the police act and enforce the law is 
affected by their views on race relations. And their training comes out of, well, first of all, the laws that are being enforced. Many of those laws come out of slavery. Many of the laws that we have that particularly affect the black population come out of slave codes. And we have white and, and we have white supremacists that tend to promote the supervillain that is always thought of as being black. This murderer from Brazil that is on the loose in Pennsylvania. At first blush, no, not no, at any blush, he's white. He you'd probably have to hear him speak before you knew he was Hispanic. And if he doesn't speak, he he would probably be treated as a white criminal. A dangerous one, but a white criminal. He's dangerous because he got out and he was convicted for murder. So they're going they're going to pull the gun on him regardless. He's broken into houses, he's stolen backpacks, he's stolen food, but he hadn't killed anybody else since he's broken out. But I would predict that if he starts speaking with a Hispanic accent, his treatment will become worse. So let's let's uh let's hold that thought and we'll continue it in uh, our next segment. But I do uh I do have some, you know, concerns about where we are, where we were, and where we're headed. And um, we'll talk about that in part two. Okay. Thank you, uh, Phil. Thank you, Nationwide. And when we come back, I want to hear your, your responses. Okay. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.